Hey, I'm Will Levis. He's Eric Claville. You're tuned into Levis and Claville, where we tell it to you straight the way it is, because it's like that from a black male's perspective. So let's get right to it. Today's show, The Color of Police Encounters. You know, recently, um, with all of the cases that have been coming down, uh, George Floyd, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, is, is, we've got recent news coming from there. You've got the encounter that's happened now in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. A lot of people who would like to, let's just say, be dismissive of the fact that Black men and women seem to be having these deadly encounters with police at higher rates and other groups, you know, they'd like to go to stats and identify and say that, you know, the stats don't bear this out. And the New York Times had, had uh, published a study, it was actually back in uh, 2016, that said when African-Americans and Latinos are stopped by and questioned by police, they are no more likely to be killed uh, or seriously injured than are white people drawn into similar encounters with the police. However, African-Americans and Latinos, especially men, are far more likely than our non-Latino whites to be stopped and questioned by police. So on his face, when you hear that, you say, okay, well, when they encounter police, they're no more likely to die. So why is it that, you know, we seem to be having so many of these cases where folks are going from minor offenses to lethal death? And then if there are more encounters, well, what is that saying about African-Americans, you know, what is that saying about black and brown people and the yeah. dismissive crowd who would like to think that, again, that the victim of these crimes are the problem will say clearly they're implied that, you know, there must be something wrong with black and brown people that they are in, in these increased situations where they're encountering police. But actually, the study bears it out that that there is clearly still a problem. If you got, if Black's only 12% of the population, you got to ask yourself, well, why are Blacks and Latinos and others and people who are poor having more encounters with police? Is there something going on there with policing that is increasing these amount of encounters? And I know, Eric, you know, we've been on different shows and I know you've talked about you know, some yeah. studies that shown and we've actually had conversations with police themselves that talk about the incentives of actually going in and uh, policing these, right. these communities where black and brown people and, and poor people are because it's a lot easier. There's, wow. there's actually incentives for right. police to uh, go into these neighborhoods and have these increased encounters. Well, well, first of all, I think this conversation we're having now is probably one of the most important ones because when you get statistics, especially that are published by reputable uh, uh, newspapers, journals, and individuals right. actually uh, articulating these, these points, there is not just numbers, but there's analysis behind those numbers. And then there's reasoning for the analysis and the numbers themselves. Exactly. So when we talk about if you like you said, if someone just hears those numbers, automatically that African Americans or Black and Hispanic people are no more likely to be stopped by uh, or killed by police officers than whites, 
but they're stopped more, right? So if you just stop right there and say they're they're not more likely, then automatically the old stereotypes start turning, right? It's like, okay, well, it must be, you know, these black people, must be these brown Hispanic people who are the problem. You know, they're not respecting the law. They're, you know, just a, a pariah on... Yeah, they must be doing more crime. You know, they, they, you must, know. <laughs> they must be there for. Absolutely. And those are the old stereotypes and racial tropes that we have to uh, uh, dispel by educating. But sometimes the education gets lost in all of the hype, right? right. It's, it's, it's easy to listen to those numbers you just gave and fall back into what I know or what I believe I know. But it really takes someone, it takes time to sit back and be educated about this. So let's take a look at that. Why are black and brown people more likely to be stopped and questioned by the police? Mm -hmm. Let's go back to 2010, to the stop and frisk case uh, in New York City. Remember, stop and frisk was a policy which was, which was deemed unconstitutional that was implemented by former uh, uh, mayor, and former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani during that time period, it perpetuated on under Mayor Bloomberg, and it, and it continued until the Supreme Court heard the case. Basically, in that wheel, that scenario, if you saw someone that looked "quote unquote" suspicious, right, you could stop and frisk them. Now they're not going to pull up and say, "Oh, look at this guy here. He's got his pants hanging down. He's got a bomber jacket on. It's not that cold out here. Let me pull the car over. Hi, I'm your friendly neighborhood police officer." Do you mind if I talk to you for a second? Oh, yeah. you know, of course, that, that engagement is not going to go like that. No, not at all. Not, not at all, which is very much what happened with Trayvon Martin. Here you had someone who wasn't even a police officer. You know, it's a, a wannabe cop, wannabe. right? Taking it upon himself. Homeowner's association. <laughs> Homeowner's association sure. guy taking it upon himself to decide who and what is suspicious. So because he had a hoodie on, now he's suspicious. People have pointed out... Um, even though he lived there. Even though he lived there, even though his father lived there, he belonged there. He had right. legal he right to be there. Father, he, he looked suspicious. Now, people had pointed out that uh, uh, Mark... Uh, uh, what's what's uh, the Facebook guy? Uh, Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg, yeah. He wore a hoodie. All the time. The whole the time. There's a lot Rocky, of people that wear Rocky wear a hoodie. Rocky wore a hoodie. You know, they put a they put a statue up for him in Philadelphia. Where you know fighter. a fictitious fighter when they got a real champion and, and spoke at Joe Frazier. But that's that's another thing. I, you know, that's another not, that's another not even a plaque. <laughs> not even, you know, so again, so now it's well, what looks suspicious? So if the trope is that dark skin, curly hair. He's wearing a hoodie, his pants are sagging, whatever the case may be. All of these things that equal black or brown exactly. is what is considered suspicion. Then now you begin to see, as you said, you, you start to peel back the layers of the stats to understand, okay, well, why is it that we're having more increased right. encounters? Is it that by being black or just by being brown, is that all what automatically puts you under suspicion? suspicion? Is that what we're saying? The answer is yes. But if we admit it, but the evidence continue, continues to show it. Now, if you go back and take a look at New York uh, City uh, Civil Liberties uh, 
group, they estimate between that 10-year period, you had about over 700,000 illegal stop and frisk. Mm -hmm. now, now, let's move a step further. The evidence that helped to build that stop and frisk case was gathered by a good cop who did the right thing, but the system came down on him. His name right. was Adrian Schoolcraft, second-generation New York police officer who served in the precinct uh, where his father served and Basically, in the briefings, they were being told, hey, get your numbers up. I'm getting calls from downtown. We need to get more people in, more arrests. Is that listen, right. somebody, stop them. Even if they don't have anything, bring them in anyway. We'll make up something and we'll charge them with something while they're here. <laughs> now, Will, <laughs> that is not part of any police training. That's not part of any ethical but matter of fact, that's that, that is that's illegal. It's criminal. Hmm. Okay, right. He he started hearing. He's like, wait a minute. Now, of course, he's a rookie. You know, less than two years on the force. He's like, wait a minute, something's wrong here. But again, you got you got the training wheel from from the academy, but you got the old heads, the old cats, right? Indoctrinating them into the culture of. <laughs> and I've had police who who told me this and said that minute you get out of academy, one of the first things that the old guard. <laughs> Uh, that wants to continue the status quo and continue to yeah. the culture that they tell you is that, okay, whatever you learn in, in the academy, forget about it, throw it in the trash. This is how it goes down oh, in the quote-unquote real world. But the thing is, is that the real world has real consequences for black and brown people of all stripes and socioeconomics. So Absolutely. you take someone like us who... You know, we came up in the neighborhoods in our different communities, me in the North, you in the, you in the South. Absolutely. We have gone through life and navigated life without having you know, major crimes and catching cases, right. gone to school, uh, done everything essentially that society says you should do to achieve, get an education, you know, raise families. And then now, because of what people want to associate with suspicion, even someone who's black and is not doing the crime, which is the overwhelming majority of black and brown people out here, and they're not doing crimes. But they all fall under this cloud of suspicion. I remember you know, being a, a columnist, and even when I was a reporter in Arizona and being a columnist in Virginia mm -hmm. and dealing with police, one of the things that they would tell me is that most of the crimes are actually committed by like depending on the size of the community, like you get a community like Hampton, most of the crimes are committed by some of the same families. It's yeah. like some of the same people or associations with people who are responsible for many of like the ongoing, you know, like, like crimes that go on in the community. And I'm not talking about, yes, you'll get some domestic violence, some different things yeah. that, that can happen and affect almost everyone. But for the most part, they have a good idea of who, who, commits, of who commits the crime. Yeah. And then things like drug use and drug sales, they go on all over the city, in every community of the city. And some of the, in fact, and a lot of the cocaine sales go on in some of the higher income communities in a city. However, the way that it's done, it's not done in open street sales like you see in lower income neighborhoods. Right. There's a lot of that stuff is done 
behind doors. You got the, you know, you got the drug man that comes by and actually delivers it for you. But that doesn't mean that the sales aren't going on. So they have a good sense of where it's going on. And then in terms of policing, they try to limit activities to certain parts of the city where they can really be able to crack down on in it, so-called, and have their numbers up in some. But the bottom line is that it's easier to be able to police and to attack and to get away with things when you're dealing with poorer communities, which because of the way our society is structured, Ten, you know, black and brown people tend to be disproportionately represented in poorer communities, even though the majority of people who are in this country who are poor are white because of the because of the number. Now, Will, you, you've actually hit on something that's actually taught in the academies um, started out. You know, again, I've mentioned August Volker, who is really the father of criminal justice, born in uh, Louisiana, New Orleans, uh, moved to the Bay Area, first chief of. Uh, of Berkeley and out in California. And he wrote, he went through these various experiments and, and processes. And his book was really the first one used in teaching criminal justice and officers. Right. And what he found was as a police force, harsher in interrogation, harsher tactics could be used against those who were poor, those who were non-white, those who were black. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. But keep in mind, we're talking like early, late 1800s, right? <laughs> early 1900s. So you could use these tactics on them because they didn't have access to the system or people in the system right. that they would have to, that the officers would have to answer to from an uh, economic or policy standpoint or exactly. even hiring, right? So then, but they said those who are wealthier or whiter or have more access, you couldn't do that. Uh, that's why when you see law and order, you know, uh, you see, when they when they have a have a suspect that's down on Park Avenue, hmm. you know, the chief says, make sure all your I's are dotted, T's are crossed. I can't have this one coming back on, me. right? Right. Or, but if you go down over over to Harlem, you know, or, or or Spanish Harlem, they're like, you know, man, look, they get out of the car, don't even put it in park good. Hey, come here, and they throw them up against the wall. Right. Right harassment, that type of thing. We'll run you downtown now if you don't give us what we need, you know, those type of tactics. And what can that person do that they do against that that city building, that city wall? Absolutely nothing. Right. And then that person, like you said, that person a lot of times ends up with a public defender. That person will end up being thrown in jail, right? awaiting trial or without bail. And so a lot of them, because I know being from New York City, a lot of them will end up on Rikers Island wow. for for years, still mm. pending trial. trial. So now because they can't bail out, now you are here on Rikers for something that you are accused right. of. You haven't even been proven guilty, but you have, have essentially been sentenced to a guilty situation because you don't have a public, you only have a public defender who's got a case file that's going from the floor to the ceiling and beyond. And so they're just churning it through and just moving on. And then you get, in order to move the cases, then you get a lot of times a public defenders to saying, look, just plead out, just plead out on this so you can get back home. Now the person pleads out. Now they get a court a case. (laughs) <laughs> now they got a now they got a a, a record, which is going to have what an impact on what now? 
ability to get employment. Exactly. So you you so now you're ending up you 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 being kept in this cycle of poverty of not being able to uplift yourself from the environment or even be able to have the resources to change the environment in which you live into a more habitable environment. Now, Will, you just touched on something else and that we haven't even, it's it's, it's another episode, another another show, the system itself. Hmm. We're talking about the legal injustice system, right? The legal injustice. I like it. I like it. Our producer, write that down now, the legal injustice system. We got it. We got to visit it because from there we could talk about the bond system. Hmm. We could talk about the arraignment system. We could talk about the imprisonment system awaiting trial, right? And, you know, all, all of these things are people being, being money is being made on these people. The warrant system, right? You know, I, I remember I, I didn't do a lot of criminal work. I only did criminal cases of defense for clients for my civil mm. civil practice. And I remember, you know, going in and I, I was getting a getting a warrant lifted and get a getting a continuation uh right. for these, you know, the, the the child of a of a client that has some 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 ticket issues. And the line I, I walked in and the line in order to pay that traffic ticket, the line in order to, you know, deal with whatever was was so long. And we're talking, we're not talking about a mm. district court, we're talking about a city court. You know, and then of course, as an attorney, you just walk up to you know the attorney window, just, right, there, right. just have a nice conversation. And for my client, you know, even though he had a warrant, I had it lifted, and uh, we were able to get a continuation and so forth. And it took you know less than really ten minutes. It's crazy. But you think about that. But these persons are able to pay, right? And we're able to defend them uh, and give them the best defense possible. These other individuals, they can't. So they get so if you come into court and you got a warrant and you don't know you have a warrant, it's very highly and very likely that you will not leave out of that court. Hmm. You will be transported, you know, to to the holding cell. So these things just continue to roll roll over and continue on and on and on to where you can't get out of the system once you get in. And then you'll have your license suspended and all right. these things. And it's all because of something that could have been left with a warning. Or something where a person just don't have the money to do it, where the system can say, hey, release you on your own recognizance, and then you come in, you put you on a payment plan, different things like that. We could do a lot to help people, but if we help people and keep jails empty, guess what? There's a a system that don't have jobs. There's a system that's not getting money to, to run itself. So what's happening is that with the criminal injustice system, we're using poor people keeping them in debt was right. called- it's a fuel. Yeah. Fuel right. fueling the system. Yeah. Debt is prison to keep our system going. But going back to the interaction with black and brown people, Agent Schoolcraft, he recorded these unconstitutional, unethical, and illegal orders. Really? Recorded it for X amount of months. When the, they found out he was recording these and he refused to do what the what the what the orders were. They came to his, to his apartment in SWAT gear. Wow. Now, he had a recorder, and they found it, and they were berating him. But what they did not find was the camera that was recording everything as well. Wow. So they had all—I'm I'm sorry, it's vice versa. He had a camera. They found that, but he had a recorder hit. Oh, he had a recorder. Okay. So he had a in backup. The, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Of course. I mean, he's, he's a trained, trained officer, right? Right. And that 
and then they put him into a psychiatric ward. Okay. Mm-hmm. Through the keyway. And the only way his father found him is because he knew someone at the precinct. He was a retired 30 plus year officer. And from there, Will, he found his son, able to get him out. He continued to be harassed by the New York police. He settled a civil lawsuit as a whistleblower wow. for about $500,000, $600,000. But think about this. It took all of that. When one, we talk about good officers, right? People say, oh, 90% of officers are good or 95% of the majority, which I don't know where they get those numbers from or what variables are used to determine who's good and who's not. But here's an example of one good officer doing the right thing and the entire system, the largest police system in the United States came down crashing on him, right? With military tactics on him. Absolutely. You know, and and he could have lost his life in there. Who knows? But but the point I'm making is that that evidence that he had was actually utilized in the federal stop and frisk case in New York in order to deem that unconstitutional. So think about that. If, if, if the ACLU or the New York branch is right, or even if they're close, off by 3 5%, maybe 7%, you got over 700,000 people who are illegally stopped and frisked who got into the system unnecessarily, who are black and brown. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I, I, you know, I think about you talk about hit them storming his house with military tactics. Why? That's at the core of what the whole defund the police or abolish the police, even though that language can be confusing for a lot of people. That's really at the core of what this is about: is this militarization of the police and how. They come into black and brown communities, targeting and like occupying black and brown communities. So now you got an Elizabeth City, you got Andrew Brown, who, you know, who's become the latest case of this over policing, this do this overboard approach when it comes to again black and brown people because of the perception that we are so much more violent. We are so much more of a threat. And, you know, here we go, just got through George Floyd and here we are, these other cases erupting, this being one of them. And just recently, you know, the issue of the transparency with the, the, um, the, the body cam and the courtings being shown. And then we see in one of the street cameras that the city has, you see the police, the sheriff's department coming up in a pickup truck, militarized, a combination of militarized and also good old boys on the pickup truck coming to wrestle up some, you know, wrestle us up some, uh, some. Uh, it's just, it's just so mind-boggling, man, and painful to be able to watch and to say and to wonder, you know, does policing have to be this way in our communities? Again, the the question of are we having more encounters, and that's leading. To the, to the higher number of deaths, but is it that the police are also coming in and targeting our communities in this yeah. militarized way that yeah. is already putting everybody in a posture, putting them in a posture of lethal force? Absolutely. And I think that that is really where, where we're at and yeah. what we really need to be dealing with instead of tossing out stats and trying to be dismissive of what yeah. the problem is. Well, you know, again, you hit on something very important, and that's perspective and perception, right? Mm -hmm. Perspective is that 
you know, we have to come in this harsh style because our perception right. is that Blacks are more dangerous, right? Black men are have superhuman strength. You know what they said about uh, Rodney King? Hmm. And it isn't what they said about Michael Brown. Exactly. What, what they said about George Floyd. Isn't that what they the slave uh, the the black codes and slave codes said about black men? You know, Eric, got, Eric Gardner. That's why they. That's why they all yeah. had to felt they had to wrestle him down. Super human strength. Right. Yeah. So again, and now to me, that all if you have to use that type of force on one man, and many men, then that also speaks to a level of inferiority as well. Hmm. You know. So you know you have to address both sides. Either you're lying. Or there are some other issues of inferiority um, that we have to deal with, so you don't actually have that. And, and also, I, I will say that the images of black men and brown men that we are perpetuating involuntarily and voluntarily hmm. in music, in film, <clears throat> in advertisements, it doesn't do us any. It doesn't do. Uh, it doesn't help. It's, it's, it certainly it certainly doesn't help because, as you say, we don't have the advantage of being viewed in a 360-degree view, that there are all types of Black men within the community of Black men. We have that kind of view when it comes to white men. I mean, if a, if a white man goes and sprays an entire um, uh, movie theater, we don't turn around and say that, well, all white men do that. Okay. Or if a white man blows up a federal building in Oklahoma, kill you know, killing children and, and and innocent people, we don't say necessarily that all white men are domestic terrorists. And and, or, and we or should kill or kill kids in elementary school in Connecticut. Right. Well right. And, and we should blacks in the church of South Carolina. Right. right. Exactly. But you know, when it comes to black and brown men, even you know, brothers who have not engaged in those kinds of crimes and then, and then find themselves engaged in a, in a minor offense can have an encounter that that leads to death. And that's really what we're trying, that's really what we're trying to correct. When I think about what we can do, I mean, we've talked about the types of things that need to happen, change in police culture, uh, change in how we really view each other and really respecting people's humanity. I think the pressure, the number one thing that has to continue is the pressure of the moment that we need to have change. And it's got to be big change from a policy standpoint, as well as changes in, in individual behavior, changes in police culture. This We've got to keep the pressure on. And I, I just applaud the, the, uh, a lot of the young people who have remained in the streets peacefully, putting pressure on and keeping attention on this issue because it's it's really we're at a moment where we really need we really need a big change. Absolutely. You know, when you talk about the system, I want to go back to another case uh in New York. It's it's uh this is more recent, uh just in 2019. You have black police officers that actually retired early hmm. as opposed to staying on the force on a job that they love because they got tired, the name of the article is, I got tired of hunting Black and Hispanic people. Mm. I got tired of hunting Black and Hispanic people. Mm. Multiple officers in Brooklyn say they were told by a commander that white and Asian people should be left alone. Mm. 
Hmm. And this is the subway glitch, right? They said, even if they're breaking the law, they should be left alone. Only go after black and brown people. So there you have it. Again, the reasoning behind the numbers and the, and the analysis is, is that the reason why you have more encounters is because police are targeting hmm. black and brown people even more so and giving a pass to whites and uh, white white people and Asian people. So it's not that white and Asians commit less crimes or different types of crimes. It's just that their crimes are not, they're not being held accountable for them, you know, in this particular argument. So you have a class action lawsuit of officers who love what they do, had to retire early in order to bring it, by the way. Hmm. Because, you know, in the the, the few cases that I did uh, litigate in employment discrimination, and I stopped that area because it's so taxing, it's very heavy. Uh, hats off to all the um, warriors that do it and, def- and absolutely, they absolutely. actually represent plaintiffs in, in, in great cases because there's a lot that goes on. Um, you know, it's it's really tough to bring an action like this against your company or, or individuals that you work with and still stay there and work. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. I mean, you know, people say, oh, I'll sue you. And I'm like, uh, yeah, okay. You know, that's that, that could be very uh, uh, toxic and taxing. But these men and women, they said, we're going to do the right thing. And they, in order to do that, some of them had to retire and do it. But again, it shows that it is a bias. It's not implicit. It's explicit. Right. Intended. Okay? So we can't really, uh, in, in, in a lot of cases, all right, not every case, but in a lot of cases, I want to put that disclaimer in. So we can't really dress this thing up, you know, you know with flowers. And no, you can't. You can't. You can't. You know, so I guess, you know, what we have to do, Will, you know, as African-Americans and as America, is that we got to stay vigilant. We got to stay read up. We have to stay study, uh, you know, study to show ourselves approved, uh, making sure that we understand the uh, implications of these stats and numbers. And we apply the right reason. Have an open mind, but at the same time, apply the right reasons for it. That's right. I'm with you. So we want to thank everybody for joining us for this episode of LaVise and Cleville. Uh, if you like what you hear, follow us on our social media at LaVise and Cleville on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, ACAST, and also YouTube. Like, share, and if you have any comments, let us know. Because to us, that's the way it is. We'll see you next time.